Welcome to The Working Therapist with Hayden Bolick, a podcast designed to help you grow more, do more, and be more as a therapist. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. We're glad you've joined us for today's podcast. So here's your host, Hayden Bolick. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Working Therapist. I'm Hayden Bolick, your host. And today, you and I are hanging out and we're talking about speech and language evaluations. And the reason I decided to do this podcast is because of the framework and the setup and how to mix the standardized testing with the clinical assessment, how to think about it and how to think, what are you trying to get out of an evaluation? So if we start there, what are we trying to get from an evaluation? The goal of this evaluation for any about speech, language, PT, OT, it doesn't really matter is how to make the biggest impact in this child's life. And to make the biggest impact, we have to figure out the main areas of need. So I'm talking bigger than just, hey, we did the PLS and we're going to pull out the things that they didn't score, they didn't get right on the test. I'm talking about thinking broadly of the whole child, the whole family. Have I really asked all the right questions, looked at all the right things to figure out how can I make the biggest impact? So yes, the child doesn't know pronouns. They missed all that on the PLS. Or yes, they missed colors. Or they can't do prepositions. I'm just for an example. But are those the big things? Because if the child can't use a single word or they can't put two words together, it doesn't really matter if they can't identify or name their colors. If they can't communicate, say they're three and a half and they can only use 50 single words, that's where to make the biggest impact. The colors will come. That's on down the list. Today, what I really want to talk about is the framework for the eval, how to really get to, in a fast and efficient way, thorough way, how to make the biggest impact for kids and families. That's our job. That's also how you get buy-in from the family. So I want to talk about that too. How do you get buy-in from the family so that you're partnered with this situation? You're the therapist partner there, the family partner. You're all on the same team here. So at the end of the eval, it's almost kind of like all hands in the middle and huddling like, go team! Because when you start this speech language therapy thing, which is next after the eval, it's not just, hey, bring them in for 30 minutes twice a week. We're going to fix everything. It's, I'm 30 minutes twice a week. I'm going to drive the train. I'm making the plan. I'm establishing what we're going to do. And I'm going to do that in therapy. But then I'm going to give you stuff to do at home. And then when you come back next week, you're going to tell me how it went. And then that's going to affect what I do in therapy and so on down the line. So it's a whole your turn, my turn, your turn, my turn situation. That's really what we're going for. Fast, efficient, eval, thorough, get to the main area of need, make the biggest impact and get the parents buy in. And then you're done. So now we know where we're going to go. So how do we get there? Well, the evaluation really, if you think about it, there's three phases of the eval. And every evaluation addressed these areas. One, where have you been? Meaning child and family, where have they been? What's the history? Where are they in school? Where were they last year in school? What was their birth history? What's been happening with this child? What does the therapist who treated beforehand know? So what other services has this child ever received? That's where have they been? All those questions are where have they been? So that's the first phase of the evaluation. It's going to be important to know that later. The second phase of the evaluation is where are they now? We have to answer that question. What's happening right now, real time? What are the strengths? What are the areas of weakness or the areas of opportunity? What are they doing right now? And then the third phase is where are we going? That's your plan of care. Okay, these are the strengths. These are the areas for opportunity. So where are we going? That's my plan of care. Those are my goals. So every eval has those three phases. And how you set up the whole environment is key to success, to finding out what area can make the biggest impact for this child to help change their life right now. So in your environment, and right now let's talk about a clinical outpatient setting. Think 
about your environment. So you've already done your chart review and now how is the room set up? Well, if you're on phase one, that's where have we been. The only person that's going to know that is the caregiver who's bringing the child in. So if you've got a two-year-old, they don't know where they've been. They've been there, but they can't tell you because they're there to see you. So the parent is who you've got to talk to. So you want to set the environment up so that the child has something to do in the room and you're able to talk to the parent because you need about seven to 10 minutes to kind of get some information about, hey, where have you been? Meaning the child, where has the child been? What, give me the birth history. So you want a clean environment. If it's not clean, you've already communicated to the family. I don't really care because I didn't take time to clean the room. It's got to be clean. It also has to be clutter free. That means you need to get your stuff up. So I know already know you got a therapy bag and you probably have a purse. So those need to be nice and neat in a corner or they need to be up on a cabinet or they maybe you have the opportunity to put them in a shelf or a hook somewhere else not in the room but your stuff needs to be really neat and clean but very out of the way you don't need to have food out in the room it communicates again hey i'm not really prepared for you because i didn't think about the fact that you may have certain aversions to smell or food sensitivities or food allergies if you have like a water bottle it needs to be covered so that they can't get to that various toys need to be boxed up and put away in cabinets if you got them or at least just boxed up and put away to the side so that it communicates to the child and family, hey, we're not playing with this stuff right now. And then I go ahead and pull out my basic evals. I know already what age the child is. So I've got, you know, the PLS, if that's what I want to do. I've got my language test, the EOW, the ROW. I'm just naming some just basic tests that we have. They're kind of the standards. Goldman Fristo. I may pull out the non-speech because I'm not really sure. I personally love the non-speech test. I don't know that that's really a standard assessment, but I love it. Sometimes I'll pull it out just to have because it's only a couple sheets of paper really just in case the three-year-old or four-year-old or two-year-old I'm evaluating is a different cognitive level than what I'm expecting. So I'll have my test out there and kind of push those over to the side. I have my protocols ready to go, push those over there to the side so that they're not in the middle of the room all sprawled out and messy. So I've gotten my environment clean, but then I have a few select toys in the middle of the room so that when the child comes in, they're not feeling like this is a hospital or a medical environment or I'm a scary or threatening individual. So I have toys sitting out in the middle of the floor, but I have toys that I'm not going to use in my assessment because I want to communicate to them this is playtime right here because I'm talking to your mom or dad or caregiver and you're going to play here and it's a non-threatening safe fun environment so you can go ahead and get comfortable so I usually have out like the Fisher Price Farm and the reason I like that toy for the beginning part of the eval is because I can number one clean it up real fast because I can put all the animals in really quick but it's also got lots of little pieces and it scans a big age group so like a child who's 18 months old will come in and, and they've got little pieces and they're going to interact with that farm differently than say a four-year-old, but they can both do something with that toy. Even if they're just carrying around the pieces of the animals around the room and like an 18-month-old and showing them to their mom or dad or caregiver and a four-year-old actually might play with it. But it also kind of lets me know, hey, what are you doing with that toy? And are you interested at all to figure it out? Because that gives me a lot of info. So I usually do the Fisher-Price barn. And if that sort of goes south pretty quick, I have a backup set of like a whole box of little cars because they just may want to dump them out and put them back in. When I say a whole bunch of little cars, I mean like five. So like maybe some Hot Wheels or some bigger cars. And then I may have a book that I'll throw out in the middle of the floor. Also, not all of these things at once. I might have like the Fisher Price Barn and the book. And then I'll pull out the cars if I have to. I don't have the baby doll sitting out there because if I do have a baby doll sitting out there, sometimes little girls get stuck on that and they never leave it. So the baby doll is a backup. 
So for phase one, I position my body with the parent. I'll have two chairs. Or if I see a couple of people in the waiting room with the family, then I'll have maybe a couple of chairs so that they're comfortable because I want them to sit in and come and watch the eval. And I have all of my parents. And I very rarely say all or never and that kind of thing. But I try to always have all of my parents come back with the eval because I need them. This is my opportunity to go ahead and establish a rapport and a plan. And if they're not part of the plan, then they're not going to buy in and they're not going to be with me for the duration. And I need them because they're my partner in this situation. So if they're not in the room from the get go, they can't help me make the plan because it's their child and we got to do it together. So I need them in the room. So that's if you're in a clinic, that's how I set the room up. There's a couple chairs, at least one for each for a parent. There's a chair for me and I really important for my for me to be in a chair at the beginning of the eval, if at all possible. And then there's toys right in the middle of the floor, no other clutter and only the toys I've mentioned, no other toys than that. And my evals are pushed to the side of my eval books and templates and that kind of thing. Other toys that I've, I'll talk about in a second that I'm going to use in the eval is there with the testing materials, very quick, easy access, but nowhere near the middle of the room. They're actually really close to me and pushed to the side so I can grab them really quick. And then the child's there in the middle of the room. When you open the door up, the first thing they're going to see is the toys. I direct the parent to the chair. I sit in the chair. I've got my protocols and stuff to write with right there, ready to go so we can start and the child can start playing immediately. And there's not any kind of setup time because I'm fresh out of time for setup time because I've only got an hour at the most to get what I need to get. And I don't have time to go and finagle and get my stuff ready to go. In a home visit or a daycare or a classroom or I mean in a school type of setting, you can do the exact same thing. You may not have the parent there with you, but you can have the toys. You can gather your information. Usually you don't have to have the child play with something while you gather your information. Usually you can do that from the teacher or people before you ever start the eval. So then when you get the child, you can start your eval. So you don't have to have the same type of setup, but the evaluation, you do need to have a clean, neat space, but a fun space because you're not going to get what you want if it's not fun because these are kids and they play with stuff and it's got to be fun. I mean, fun is not a word I would use when I describe a speech assessment, but the eval can still be fun and interactive and natural so you can get your stuff. So that's phase one. So now we're back in the clinic again. Family comes walking. I get them situated. I got the child in the middle of the room. They're playing with the barn and doing whatever they're going to do. I've got my stuff out and I'm writing. First, you want to get the birth history. And a lot of times parents will want to talk to the birth history and the medical information. And sometimes there's a ton of information you need there and it takes longer than in 10 minutes, but you really want to try to get that stuff in 10 minutes without it being too much of a story. You need the facts and not the story. You want to let them tell the story a certain amount because, again, that establishes a rapport and you kind of can see, okay, where have we been here? But you've only got about 10 minutes for this little two, three, four, five-year-old person. You don't have a long time. If it's a school age, you might have a little bit longer, but still you don't have that long. So, But you do need some information, so you need the biggies. You need to know, okay, what was the birth history like? Were they born prematurely or were they born full term? If they were born full term and they ended up in the NICU, you need to know why were they in the NICU and what was the medical course like and what were the complications. If they were born preterm and they were in the NICU, you need to know how early they were. You need to know if they had any brain bleeds. Is there an ROP situation? Is there lung or any kind of issues with breathing? And do they pass their hearing screening? You need to know those. And so you can ask that information very, very quickly. And if you don't know what that stuff means, refer to a podcast. We did a great podcast with a neonatologist and nurse practitioner. They went through all of this information about the NICU and the this kind of like NICU 101. It was fantastic. So if you haven't heard it, go back and listen. Judy and Scott filled, I asked them every question under the sun and they told us all about all of what, what a brain breed was. If a child's less than a thousand grams, what that means, the whole nine yards. So it was great. So it's important to know if the child was in the NICU or not and if they were premature or not. 
and you want to ask always for speech and language ear infections, ear questions, hearing. You got to know about their hearing status. And so you want need to ask, you know, have they had any major ear infections? Well, how many in a year would you say they've had? More than five ear infections. They need to see an otolaryngologist. So they need to go to the ENT and see that person. So that's just something to write down and take up with a pediatrician after the evaluation is over with. But if they're really gunky, you know, meaning that they've got a cold, you want to ask, is this an all the time thing or just an off and on thing? If they're breathing out of their mouth and not their nose and they're very gunky, then you want to ask, hey, does the child snore? They may have huge adenoids and huge tonsils that, again, they need to go to the ENT. And that can affect how well they're hearing, which also can affect then your, of course, your speech and language about. Not saying you're not going to pick them up for speech therapy until they go to the ENT. I'm just saying you need to know the information so you can get to the pediatrician because that's why they sent them to you so that you can help that family get to the ENT. A therapist I'm working with, I'm actually her CFY supervisor now. We saw a little fellow last week and he was breathing out of his mouth the whole time. He really didn't have any congestion out of, out of his nose, but he's pretty severely delayed language-wise. He has basically a very uncomplicated medical history, nothing major medical going on. We talked to his teacher and say, hey, is he congested a lot? She goes, oh, all the time. This is a good day because he wasn't congested. So then we came back at nap time. That child, you could hear him snoring like in the cafeteria. I mean, he was like, he sounded like a grown man. He was this little tiny four-year-old thing, cute as a button, snoring like you would not believe. Well, so we called the family. The mom's like, oh my gosh, yes, he's had eight ear infections in the past year. He needs to go to the ENT, but he's also got delayed language and his speech is not all that great. I mean, he's four, but he's not really communicating that effectively in terms of putting a lot of words together and phrases. That's just an example. And that's why you need to know that information. And so then what can happen after the eval, if you've asked all the questions about the NICU state, major medical complications, you don't need a ton of information from the family regarding that. You just need to know that. You get a medical release from the parent that day right then. And you go back to the pediatrician's office and you ask for all the documentation to support that because you can't put diagnosis codes in your system anyway till you get all that information from the doctor and the pediatrician and then that tells you the rest of the story and those and you don't have to take up time in your eval for this big long story because now you're at the end of phase one. Where have we been? You kind of got a general outline and you got to move on to phase two. So phase one, I'm sitting in a chair, I'm writing stuff down, I'm talking to the mom, dad, caregiver who's in, child's in the middle of the floor playing. And in phase two, I shift my attention 100% because now I got to focus 100% on that child and I move my body. So I put my pen down, I put my paper down, I need to see what they're doing. So what it means when to see what they're doing is that means you've got to be in real time right there in the minute, in the moment with that child. So you've got to move from the chair to the floor. That's when you get out whatever tests that you've deemed appropriate at that minute and whatever toys you need. You need to be in the floor. And then the word ignore is not right because I'm not ignoring the mom and dad, but my attention has for sure refocused to the child 100% and I'm in that moment with that child. And in that time frame, you've got to be able to figure out, okay, what's their level of play? Is there a sensory motor play? Are they doing a combinational play? Are they doing functional play? Are they at a pretend play scenario. So you got to figure that out. So you have to have toys appropriate for that to figure that out. We've got podcasts that talk about a lot of typical speech and language development and stages of play and then toys that go with that. So check those podcasts out. But anyway, we have that. You also need to figure out expressively how do they communicate. So I usually always ask a family of a two, three, four-year-old who isn't really talking maybe, if something is up high and they want it, how do they get it? I always ask that because that tells you if they're a perlocutionary communicator, an illicit 
locutionary communicator or a locutionary communicator. And you need to know, are they able to intent? So can they communicate intent? Are they doing it with just gestures, perlocutionary? Are they doing it with sound and gestures, illocutionary? Are they doing it with words, locutionary? So you've got to find out if something is up high or they want a snack or they want something they can't get to, what do they do? And a lot of times parents will say, oh, they reach or they reach and you know make a sound or they come and get my hand and take it to me or they just fall out on the floor and have a temper tantrum. Let me tell you, the kids that fall out on the floor and have a temper tantrum are smart because people start hopping and jumping and running if a kid's having a temper tantrum in the middle of the floor. So for those kids who go to zero to 180, like they're fine one minute, they fall out on the floor the next screaming because they want something. That's how they're communicating. So you got to figure that out. And that's phase two. That's really what you do as a speech therapist. You're trying to figure that stuff out. Phase three is where you're basically got to wrap up this evaluation and I move my body from the floor back again to the chair and I get my pen back out in my paper again and then I refocus my attention back to the mom and dad or caregiver. Not necessarily that I've ignored the child or I'm ignoring the child because at this point I've established a rapport and they're my buddy. So I'm not ignoring them at all. And this is a good time for bubbles. This is where I got to get mom and dad and caregiver person on board. So I bring out the bubbles or maybe a wind up toy, but I got to do something with a little bell and whistle. So the child's a little bit distracted because I got to talk to mom about the plan. So I got to tell the mom, here's the biggest areas what he's doing. Here's where I think we have some opportunity to make a difference. So I want to write my goals and I'm not listing every single one of my goals here, but I'm saying, okay, receptively, here's where they got, here's what's happening. And I got to be able to quickly figure out here's where I can make the biggest impact. So I tell the family, these are my goals so I can get buy-in. And so I have to also ask them, have I missed anything? Is something else going on that you don't haven't told me that I don't know about here? So basically, I've sort of given them the outline for the plan. The evaluation that I write up is going to give me more detail, but that's the outline for the plan so they can tell me yes, no. And so then I also say at the end of the eval, the very last thing, so this is how this works. I'm going to write up the assessment and the goals. I'm going to get you a copy. I think he needs twice a week for 30 minutes. I think she needs once a week for 30 minutes, whatever it is. But my job is to create create the plan to set it up and to show this child and you how to do it in therapy. And then every single session, I'm going to give you something to work on at the house. And then you come back every single session, tell me how it went. I'm going to ask specifically, and then I'm going to give you something else the next time. If if I'm not giving you something, you need to ask me because I'm going to hold that family accountable and I want that family to hold me accountable. And that's how you get buy-in and you say, hey, does that sound like what you want to do? And that's all hands in huddle and woohoo team happens. And so then they can tell you issues or whatever's related. That's also when you can say if other things have been found out in the vow, like say you did language, the language took you the whole time. So I, you really couldn't even assess the speech as much or really even assess. Maybe there was some fluency concerns that happened in the middle of the vow. And at that point, you can also say, hey, look, I want you to come back and we're going to do a fluency component of the evaluation. I need to figure that out more. So that's where you can also, if there's feeding issues, hey, I want to do a feeding eval, you need to come back next week. We'll do that, whatever it is. But right then you got to leave that, that family with a plan knowing you're going to do something next. The best way to lose a family is to not do that. And then they don't know what else to do. And like, why did I even come here? What's the plan? Because they're coming here because they have something that their most special person needs some help with. And you're the person to tell it to them. So you got to tell it to them before they leave. So that's phase three. It's vitally important. And it sets you up for fewer cancellations and no no shows. Because in outpatient speech therapy, outpatient clinics, cancellations or no-shows are something you always have to manage. And so if you can still go ahead and set the plan up and get the buy-in right there and tell them how you're going to work together and how this plan is going to help their child and is this what they want, you got buy-in. 
So that's how that works. That's the speech language of Al. Fill in the blanks with the material and what you need there. But it's phase one. Where have we been? Phase two. Where are we now? And phase three. Where are we going? And you're getting ready to tell the family, where are we going? Here's how I can help you. Is that how you want help for your child? Because ultimately they are the expert. I never have them leave an eval that I don't give them something to do. So this week, before you come out for your first therapy session, I want you to work on labeling objects around the house, something like that, whatever it is. So you want to give them something to do. So you go ahead and set the precedent right there that day. So that's the speech language evaluation. And really, once you have that framework, you can set it up. However, that takes an hour, no more, sometimes a little bit less, but usually shouldn't take too much more unless during phase two, you had tons of testing you had to do, and then you probably need to bring back in for another day anyway. But that's pretty much it. Phase one, phase two, phase three. And then you have, you know, your follow-ups you have to do besides write your report. So if you follow that, where have you been? Where are you now? Where are you going? That also pretty much writes your report because you got the birth history at the top, the results of the test right there, and then where are we going? And you can justify basically in your, you got to do medical justification for services pretty much now for everything for every insurance company. But where we are now and the areas for opportunities, how that doesn't match with where they are developmentally, that's your justification for speech therapies. And that also then creates your plan for the future. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. So I hope you enjoyed it. I sure did enjoy my time with you. You can check out those other podcasts I mentioned, the NICU one with more information there. We have lots of podcasts I've talked about with toys and therapy ideas, also typical developing for speech and language, also for motor, OT, and PT. We have those podcasts that we've done. So check those out on theworkingtherapist.com, also pediatricdt.com. We have lots of various therapy resources for you there in terms of like good toys that we love here and use here in therapy videos to go with all those. So check all that good stuff out so try it next time around see how it goes i love some feedback and i'll catch you next time on another episode of the working therapist thanks for joining us for today's edition of the working therapist an extension of the pediatric developmental therapy network if you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com that's pediatricdt.com 